the thing about bias, unexamined or unconscious bias, is that it can often happen so quickly. Our response can be so fast and so automatic that we don't always realize it's happening. And I can tell you personally, like as I delved into this work and as I really tried to understand how bias operates, I started to notice what was happening in my own mind. And it was alarming. I thought I had been a really aware person. But once I really started paying attention to those snap reactions, judgments, predictions, expectations, stereotypes, you know, it was like the veil was lifted. And all of a sudden I was seeing all sorts of things that my mind was doing without me realizing it. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome everyone to the Breakline Arena. Today I am thrilled to introduce our guest, Jessica Nordell. She is an award-winning author and journalist. Her first book, The End of Bias, A Beginning, was shortlisted for the Lucas Prize for Excellence in Nonfiction. Her work has appeared in publications including the New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Republic, and The Washington Post. The End of Bias was named a Best Book of the Year by Greater Good, AARP, and Inc. Magazine. It's currently being used to help train professionals, first responders, judges, corporations, faith leaders, and more across the U.S. and abroad. Jessica attended MIT and graduated from Harvard with a degree in physics, and she also earned an MFA in poetry. Hope all of you enjoy listening to this fireside chat with Jessica Nordell. Thanks for joining us. Jessica, welcome to the Breakline Arena. I absolutely loved your book. And we've talked a couple of times. I love the rigor. I love the substance. I love the grounding in science and fact and data. And I want to kind of pull a bunch of different stories that you tell in the book. And I want to use that as some of the backbone for our conversation today. But one of the stories that you told was a personal one. You tried to break into journalism as a recent college graduate, and you struggled for months to place a particular essay under your own name. And on a whim one day, you sent it out under a man's name, JD, and it was accepted within a matter of hours. And I'd love for you to share with our audience today, how did that experience ultimately shape your career? (laughs) Yes, I had been working as a journalist for local and regional publications and really wanted to place a story in a national publication. It was kind of the next step for my journalistic career. And yeah, I wasn't getting anywhere. No one would respond to my emails. I didn't know anybody. I was just like a completely random person out in the world. And yeah, as kind of a last ditch Hail Mary, I scrubbed all of my identifying information, sent out the same query using this invented name, JD, and got a response right away. The piece was published. It started my journalism career. And I ended up using JD 
as a pseudonym for a few years, actually, after that. It ended up becoming kind of complicated because the only time in my life that I was using JD was talking to editors over email. And so if I got a call from an editor and I answered it as Jessica, there was confusion. And I ended up deciding to just go back to my original name, come what may. I just wanted to be authentic to who I was. But it really, it made me think about bias. I mean, you know, in this situation, like in most situations of bias, there's not like a smoking gun. I can't prove definitively that it was the change of name that got this response. But it was like eerily, (laughs) you know, closely connected to that decision. You don't always know if that's the case, but it really started my journalistic interest in trying to understand why this was happening and if there was ultimately anything that could be done about it. Mm -hmm. And that exploration informs a lot of the topics that you cover in your book. And I want to get into it because I found it all so interesting. You referenced a researcher, Patricia Devine, and she conducted research on what you refer to as the prejudice paradox. And this is the tension that the human mind could contain beliefs people consciously endorse alongside stereotypes or associations they do not. And you explain that a belief is something that people actively choose. They're sort of present and intentional in choosing it, while an association is something that they absorb from their surroundings. And in reflecting on Patricia's findings, you wrote, having biased associations doesn't mean you're a bad person. It means you exist in a culture. So I'd love for you to share more about her work and her opinion that prejudice is a habit that can be broken? And how does this insight contribute to changing biased behavior? Yeah, you know, Trish Devine was really the first person to kind of come up with like a conceptual framework that would explain this weird phenomenon, which is that there are people, many, many, many people who claim to want to treat people fairly, who endorse egalitarianism, who say that all people should be treated with fairness and respect and dignity. And yet those same people would sometimes behave in discriminatory ways. And this was like something that really baffled psychology for many years. And there are a lot of different philosophies about what was going on. And Trish Devine was the first one to say, actually, there are two things happening in the mind at the same time. Maybe there are these beliefs, like beliefs in egalitarianism and fairness in the mind. And then maybe also there are associations that can get kind of activated or triggered in a particular situation that the person might actually not believe. They might be in conflict with the person's values. And so that model has gotten a lot of traction. It's a way of understanding biased behavior that conflicts with people's values. If you think about Trish Devine's approach that bias could be a habit, that can be really powerful because if something is habitual, then it can be interrupted. We're not stuck with it. And some of her work and some of the other approaches that I looked into for this project really looked at trying to interrupt that habit. What are the things we can do to stop ourselves from these automatic responses that can be so harmful? Like, you know, the editors who dismissed my query from Jessica, but accepted the one from JD. Can you talk about some of those strategies? You know, how should we interrupt these habitual behaviors if they do crop up for us? 
There are a lot of different strategies. I mean, the first one, and this is going to sound kind of simple, but I believe me, it's not. <laughs> the first strategy is to really practice awareness, awareness of what's happening in our mind at the moment it's happening. Because the thing about bias, unexamined or unconscious bias, is that it can often happen so quickly. Our response can be so fast and so automatic that we don't always realize it's happening. And I can tell you personally, like as I delved into this work and as I really tried to understand how bias operates, I started to notice what was happening in my own mind. And it was alarming. I thought I had been a really aware person. But once I really started paying attention to those snap reactions, judgments, predictions, expectations, stereotypes, you know, it was like the veil was lifted. And all of a sudden I was seeing all sorts of things that my mind was doing without me realizing it. So the first step is really awareness. And that's magical because it gives you freedom. Once you start seeing what's happening in your mind, then you can make a choice about what to do. Actually, Jessica and I have talked about this particular instance, and I want to give you an example of awareness that I had. And it was something that happened 10 or 15 years ago when I lived in the Bay Area. I was at a stoplight and I was just, I had just taken my foot off the brake and was starting to go through the stoplight. And a woman driving a minivan went 80 miles an hour through the intersection. And I immediately had this thought in my mind she is an angry stay at home mom. And I examined that thought right away. I was so horrified. I don't know who this person is. She could have been on her way to the hospital. She could have been on her way to have a baby. She, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why she could have behaved that way. But I immediately had this association. And it was really helpful for me to see in your book, Jessica, just because I had that thought come into my mind, that did not mean I was a bad person. That means I existed in a culture, but at the same time, it was important for me to notice it, like mm -hmm. to notice even with the work that I do, I still exist in a culture and I still need to be aware of some of these associations that come up. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting, Bethany. I mean, do you think in that case, where do you feel like that automatic reaction came from? It's so funny. No, but the, like, I actually don't know where that came from. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I have sisters who work full-time. I have sisters who stay home and I love them equally. I honestly, when I read that in your book, it was the first time that I was like, it's not just my family of origin. There are all kinds of impulses from our society and our culture that we're absorbing intentionally and unintentionally all day, every day. And yes. so I actually, I have no idea where that thought came from and why it came to my mind in that moment. But reading that in your book made me realize I absorb all of this without even knowing it. Yes. And so the awareness piece, I think is hugely important. And I think it can be so powerful to practice that awareness because then the next time you have a similar experience, you'll start to have that memory of, oh, this is how I sometimes react in this situation. Let me see if, you know, get more information and find out whether that's actually accurate or whether I need to do something different. Yeah. And I want to take this into the next question that I have for you, because I think that this is interesting and worrisome and just good to know all at the same time. You wrote that confirming stereotypes makes people feel good. Mm. Um, like almost like a, an endorphin rush. You said mm -hmm. that correctly predicting an uncertain outcome 
feels in our brains like pleasure. Mm -hmm. And you referenced the media scholar, Travis Dixon, who shared that thinking in a stereotyped way becomes almost addictive. And it reminded me of someone, I overheard a conversation at one point and someone said, stereotypes save time. They didn't know that I was overhearing the conversation, but it just like, it reminded me of that statement. And you also make the case that when women behave in ways that are at odds with female stereotypes, it can elicit a backlash. And I'm sure many women here have perhaps felt that backlash, but the backlash has a neuroscientific explanation and you Mm -hmm. describe it as an angry protest from the brain's reward system. So Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to share a little bit more about the neuroscience behind Mm. this and make us aware of that. Yeah. I mean, that was very alarming for me to discover as well. You know, when we have an expectation or a prediction and we don't know what the outcome is and then it's fulfilled, it feels pleasurable. That's sort of how our reward system works. And if you think about it, a stereotype, what's a stereotype? It's a prediction. It's an expectation of what a person or a situation is going to be like or what they are. And that is sometimes, that prediction is sometimes fulfilled and sometimes not. So when that prediction is fulfilled, that feels on a neurologic level pleasurable because it's a fulfilled expectation. It's the same reason music feels pleasurable or recognizing a certain pattern, seeing a pattern fulfilled feels pleasurable. But what's really interesting and kind of scary, honestly, about stereotyping is that there's this other phenomenon called the intermittent reward cycle. And what this means is that if we have a certain kind of prediction we're making, and sometimes we're correct, and sometimes we're not. In other words, sometimes the expectation is fulfilled, and sometimes it's not fulfilled. This is called intermittent reward, and it is very addictive. So this is how slot machines addict people. You sometimes get the reward and you sometimes don't. And this feeds into a cycle of addiction. So some, as you pointed out, Travis Dixon and some other scholars have actually talked about stereotyping as like a textbook intermittent reward pattern. Because sometimes stereotypes are right and sometimes they're wrong that pattern of being right and being wrong can be very, that can be a habit that's very hard to break making those predictions. So for that reason, and so many others, developing an awareness of what's happening can be really like a kind of the first step in having agency over what's happening in our own minds and our own behavior. And I think as if we bring it into that example about the backlash, like when a woman shows up in a way that does not conform with typical female stereotypes, for example, in the workplace, and we can notice discomfort with the fact that she's not conforming with our prediction. Yes. (laughs) And sometimes, as you said, that elicits this backlash, like wanting to put this person back in her box or back in her place, back in her corner. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that, like in the workplace? And I'm also interested in the relationship, like interrupt the habit, you know, of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. If thinking about women, There are a whole bunch of stereotypes of femininity that women experience in the workplace. Women are often expected to be communal rather than individualistic, expected to be nurturing rather than competitive, 
expected to kind of hold back and not flaunt their successes or be self-promoting and are sometimes seen as being abrasive for behavior that in a man is just accepted as normal and par for the course. And so, you know, those are just some of many, many stereotypes that women experience. And absolutely, I mean, I'm guessing that a lot of women here right now here have been told they're too abrasive, they need to tone it down, they need to let other people shine. I mean, these are the kinds of things women hear a lot in the workplace. Now, at the same time, if women are too quiet, then that is also criticized. So, I mean, one of the challenges of being a woman in the workplace is that women generally receive much more criticism about their personality than other groups. And part of that has to do with this, you know, not conforming to sort of traditional stereotypes of femininity. I focus my book on how organizations can change and how leaders can change and how decision makers can change rather than try to focus on helping individuals who are targeted contort themselves to fit into a biased system. I just don't, don't have patience for that. Yes. Because when we require those contortions, we all lose. And and I've told this quick story before, but I want to just make a crystal clear example of it. We welcomed the late general Vince Stewart to the Breakline arena. You, You all can listen to his podcast if you're interested, but he emigrated to the U.S., from Jamaica as a teenager with a backpack on his back, emigrated to Chicago and then joined the Marine Corps and rose up the ranks and became a three-star general. And he told this very poignant story of feeling that he needed to leave himself in the parking lot when he showed up for work. And it was an example of his, just the practical reality in his mind that he needed to be somebody else in order to survive in that environment. And I look at what he was able to accomplish as part of himself or as a version of himself. And what could he have done if he was allowed to just be the fullest expression of who he was? And that delta is what we lose as teams, as organizations, as societies. And so that's what we could stand to gain if we allow folks to just be their authentic selves, show up entirely as who you are. And don't spend any time, you know, making yourself small to fit into some box. But it does take leadership to create the psychological safety to make that happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Jessica, I want to ask a related question. In your book, you talk about the relationship between categorizing, essentializing, and stereotyping. Mm -hmm. And how meaningful connections with people from groups other than the dominant ones that we call our own, how those meaningful connections can really disrupt the tendency to stereotype. So I'd love for you to just explain what categorizing, essentializing, and stereotyping means, and then how can we use these meaningful connections Mm. to disrupt those tendencies? Yeah. Our brains categorize the world because we have to make sense of the world. We have to understand what we're seeing. And there's too much information coming at us to have no categories and to just sort of have trillions of bits of information that aren't cohering in any way. So we have to categorize. Jessica, I'm sorry, but just to make the point in your book, you said like tens of thousands of years ago, if you saw a furry creature, your brain had to say, that's a lion and I'm out of here. That's right. So that's part of what you mean by like the biological need to categorize. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. The challenge is that 
categorizing has a lot of other consequences. So when we categorize, when we see a person as belonging to a category, or if we see a group of people as all belonging to a particular category, you know, residents of, you know, the state of Utah or members of the Sami ethnic group in Finland or whatever the group is, that category then unleashes all sorts of other things. So for instance, we tend to overestimate the similarities people within a category have with one another. And we tend to underestimate the similarities people in that category could have with people in another category. That's just one thing that happens. Another thing that happens is we tend to look for some kind of essential quality that ties all of those members of the category together. And this is called essentializing, looking for some or understanding or believing in some essential quality, often like a biological quality or some kind of genetic basis for these members of a group to belong together in a category. Unfortunately, then once we essentialize, it's much easier to stereotype because if you see groups as all having some fundamental similarity, it's sort of a a short hop and a jump to beginning to predict that they're going to be similar in other ways, that they're going to have all sorts of commonalities, that you're going to be able to understand something about everyone in the group, no matter who they are. And so there's this sort of chain of events where we categorize, we essentialize, and then we stereotype. And so there's, you know, it's kind of like a Gordian knot, like we are required to create categories to make sense of the world. But Once the categories that are alive in our culture become kind of part of our way of seeing the world, we can have these tendencies that can be really harmful as well. So again, being aware of what's happening can be helpful. Another concept that I find really helpful is outgroup homogeneity. And this is the idea that the group that we don't belong to, we tend to see as very similar, the members of that group as very similar to one another while we see our group as very diverse and full of lots of different kinds of members. So that's another thing that happens with categories. It's like, you know, there's a lot. And you had a second part to your question, Bethany. What was the second part? When we make meaningful connections with folks who are outside of our own communities, how does that help disrupt the stereotyping that's kind of a consequence of categorizing and essentializing? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the key here is that when we start to understand that the group that we don't belong to is just as diverse and complex and full of all sorts of different kinds of members as our group is, it becomes much harder to stereotype that group. And one of the ways that we get there, one of the ways that we develop the understanding the reality, (laughs) understanding the reality that the group that we don't belong to is just as full of wildly different people as our group. Once we have that understanding, it becomes harder to stereotype that group. And the way that we develop that understanding is by forming meaningful connections with members of groups that we don't belong to. As we form those connections, you know, we can understand reality better. We can understand the diversity of other groups better. You know, there's sort of other ways of doing this that have to do with working collaboratively on a shared goal. That's like a really helpful way to create those meaningful connections. And I can see the practical impact of this. If we just look at our political tribalization 
in this country. I mean, yes. yeah, I grew up in Vermont, like Bernie Sanders, you know, just far left, very liberal, the hippie capital of the United States. And it has been so much fun for me to blow the minds of some very conservative, deeply patriotic, heavily Republican people who care a lot about our military, just like I do. And to like find that that common ground and realize, gosh, there's so much that we can do together and we yes. don't have to agree with each other on everything. And I wish that that mindset could kind of take root, you know, within our political class, because I think that they need it. It's just an example of, you know, building some meaningful connections and getting over some of those stereotypes that we might all bring with us into our day to day work. I want to move on. You describe research from Robert Rosenthal and Lewis Terman, who discovered that if others perceive you as talented, you become more talented. Mm-hmm. And they also said our vision of what's possible for our lives can be partly fueled by others' recognition. And I want to give an example of my own life. When I was leaving Stanford to start Breakline, one of my dearest mentors is General Jim Mattis. And he was at Stanford. I was lucky enough to overlap with him. And I was very scared, you know, to leave this cushy job and to go start this organization. And he was like, of course you can do it. You have to do it. You have everything Mm. you need to succeed. And Mm. in his view of me, I found the confidence to do the thing. But it was an example of if others perceive you as talented, you become more talented. I sort of lived up to his expectation of me. And I think probably everyone on this call has had an experience like that. What is it, Jessica, that's so powerful Mm -hmm. about being labeled as talented or gifted Mm -hmm. or a bloomer or some of these other adjectives that we use when we think that someone is capable of something special? Well, thank you for sharing that story. That's an amazing story, by the way. And it is incredibly powerful. I mean, I think so much of what we can do in the world depends on how we see ourselves, whether we see ourselves as capable. And having the confidence of someone else can really alter the way we see ourselves you know, in a way that can change our lives, like the story that you just told. I mean, I think one of the most powerful ways that another person's view of us can alter the course of our lives is that we can call on their confidence in us during times of difficulty. Because that's really where the rubber meets the road, right? Like we can all embark on a difficult journey, But when we face an obstacle and we want to quit and we want to give up and we don't think we can do it, that's where we can benefit so much from someone else's belief in us. I mean, there's this great example I think I shared in the book of someone who was part of a study that Lewis Terman did, the psychologist Lewis Terman on giftedness, and he had been labeled as gifted. And he said that in his work as a NASA researcher, he would frequently come up against impossible problems that he wasn't sure he could tackle. And he said in those moments, he would tell himself, Lewis Terman thought I could do this. Lewis Terman believed in me, so I can do this. 
my hope would be for everyone to have someone like Lewis Terman in their mind saying, no, you can do this. You know, you are capable, you are gifted, you are skilled, you can do this. And Jessica, if I could, I want to interject here because I think for the Breakline community, one of the insights that Jessica is sharing is how important it is to have true mentors in your corner and how important it is to invest in relationships and really view it as part of your job is to create champions for yourself, create allies. And by the way, I think it was Mark Twain who said, like, if someone is pooping all over your dreams, get rid of them. You know, small people do that. Big Mm. people, powerful people help you too to see that you can be big and powerful. So you need to do the curation too. You know, not everybody should get a seat at your table, but the folks who can help you see what you're capable of, who can hold up that mirror and remind you of who you are and what you can do, that's who you want to draw towards you like a magnet. That is one of the practical insights, Jessica, that I think is so powerful from your book. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think what's, you know, what's important is that these folks aren't, you know, your mentors, the people who believe in you aren't just showing you who you are, but they're actually helping you create who you are. They're helping you develop into who you are. And the more positive, encouraging, you know, uplifting voices we can have as we are becoming who we're meant to be, you know, the more we'll be able to do and the more we'll be able to be in the world. Agree. Thank you. I wanted you to, I have a related question. You talk about a woman, Pico Hosoi, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but she gives the concept of the existence proof. Yeah. And you also reference another researcher's work to determine the importance of having mentors who remind you of yourself. Yes. And so in particular, this researcher Dasgupta discovered that a lack of belonging And an associated drop in self-confidence was what caused women to change fields. Whether or not they were top performers, it was that feeling that they don't belong. And the association of a drop in self-confidence, this has also been called the self-confidence cliff for some, for young women. So can we talk about their work and get into it in even more detail, the importance of having mentors who remind you of yourself, why we should not just be cultivating mentors, but also folks who, who remind us of ourselves? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Pekka Hosoi is a roboticist and a mathematician, and she was describing how in math, sometimes you need to prove that an object exists. And you can do it mathematically in a variety of ways. And one of the ways is an existence proof. You can prove that it already exists and therefore the proof works. It makes sense. And so she compared her own life as a mathematician and a roboticist as being kind of an existence proof for other women in her field. She said, you know, you need evidence that this, it can exist. The life that you are thinking about or dreaming of that it actually exists, just seeing someone who you share qualities with, an identity or, you know, a shared background can make the difference between you believing this can be possible or not. And Nilanjala Dasgupta is the psychologist you were referring to. Her work on role models is really fascinating. So she, um, in one experiment, she assigned women engineering students to have either a female role model who was an upperclassman in engineering, a male role model, upperclassman in engineering, or no role model at all. 
Um, and this was like a mentor who would kind of work with them on their assignments and check in with them throughout the, you know, throughout the year about uh, how they were doing with work. And what she found was that of the women who had female mentors, none of them left the field. And it was because they felt a sense of belonging. So regardless of their grades, regardless of how well they were doing or how you know skilled or professional they seemed to be in engineering, feeling belonging was enough to keep them in the field and allow them to persist through difficulty. Kind of linking back to what we were talking about earlier about having someone else believe in you gives you the ability to persist through difficulty. Also feeling that you really belong in a place can give you the strength to persist through difficulty. If you don't have that feeling of belonging, then the difficulty comes and you think, well, I'm not meant to be here. I'm not even meant to be here. I should go somewhere else. And she found that the women who had either no mentor or a male mentor did not have nearly the same rate of staying in the field. I mean, her philosophy is that Role models create kind of a, an inoculation or like a social vaccine so that when negative stereotypes start to come in or when they start to interact with someone's thoughts about themselves or their capacity, the role model is an inoculation against that. It kind of mm. um, immunizes them against the harmful stereotypes that can derail people. Well, we talked, Jessica, about the power of feeling part of the tribe yes. versus the discomfort of being isolated or yes. feeling isolated, even at like a biological level. Yes. And I think that that's so true. And your comments remind me when I was, again, very early in my career, when I was at McKinsey and I was looking at the women partners ahead of me, they all had stay at home husbands. And my husband has a and continues to have a very active career, I knew that that wasn't going to be my path. And I did not see myself in these women at all. And it was definitely part of my decision to leave. I was like, I just, these are not my people. I don't belong here. This is not the path that's going to work for me. And I did feel that sense of isolation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that you talk about is when we have extremely high-performing people who join an organization as the first of whatever community they're representing. And you talk about shadow or pioneer requirements that are piled on top of the skill set, the JD that all of us can see online. So these are things that are unexpressed, but still true when you are the first or one of the first few in a particular organization or a particular role. And you talk about how these shadow or pioneer requirements complicate the path to success for underselected professionals. And I want all of you to be able to take that language with you because it may help you describe your experience. Everyone in the Breakline community is underselected for one or perhaps more reasons. And I think it's important. I think this is a really common experience that folks have when they are the first or one of the first few. And I think having the language for it kind of increases our power and our control over the experience. And so, Jessica, I'd love for you to share this concept and how it complicates the path, like the additional burden that might be placed on folks in that position. I'm so glad you bring this up because this was one of my most exciting and sort of illuminating discoveries through doing this project. I had talked to hundreds of people from lots of different walks of life and backgrounds and professions and careers. And the pattern that I noticed was that 
when someone was one of very few members of their group or the only member of their group in a job, in a department, in a field, there was something kind of invisible going on, which was on one hand, that person had to meet or exceed all of the stated requirements for that job. So for instance, one of the people I spoke a lot to was a mid-career African-American woman engineer in aeronautics. And so the job requirements are like extreme creativity, technical expertise, ability to innovate, ability to collaborate on teams, ability to you know successfully run projects and manage other people. Those are sort of the stated requirements for her job. But because she was one of very few women and the only African-American woman in her department, there were also all these other requirements. She had to be very good at, for instance, brushing off comments that were negative or harmful. She had to be really good at working alone because she actually found herself, in addition to working on teams, also having to work alone. She had to be really skilled at making sure that she was credited properly for her work. She had to be extremely strategic about making sure she was included in meetings. She wasn't always invited to the meetings she needed to be in to do her job. So in addition to the stated job requirements, there were what I've come to call shadow requirements. This whole other constellation of job requirements that are also critical for this person to be able to do their job and to succeed. And nobody talks about those requirements. They're not on any formal job application. They're not measured against for performance reviews. Nobody's talking about them. So there are a couple consequences to this. One is that this makes it incredibly hard for the person to do their job because they have all of these other tasks and skills and proficiencies that they have to develop. But additionally, and I think this is a really important point as well, and I think connected to the work you guys are doing at Breakline, it also artificially reduces the candidate pool for that job. So whereas there might be, you know, 10 qualified women to do this particular job at this woman's company, maybe only one or two of them, including her, has all of the shadow requirements as well. And so the bar, the level of requirement that is demanded is so much higher and greater that it artificially reduces the pool of a pool that is already underselected, as you said. So, you know, I think this is something that's really important to talk about because I think it helps explain why it can be so difficult to persist in these roles when someone is one of the only or the only person of their group. Oh, one other last thing is I think the other thing that makes this really complicated is sometimes those shadow requirements are at odds with the stated job requirements. So the stated job might say, this person has to be a great collaborator. But the pioneer or the shadow requirement is that this person also has to be really good working alone. And so there can also be kind of a contradiction in the requirements that are actually demanded of people. Thank you so much, Jessica. I want to spend our remaining time surfacing questions from our community and sharing those with you. And I want to start with one from Sage Faraday, and she's asking, what is the best way to respond to someone 
who comments in a negative or stereotyped way directly to you? And I think that this question is so poignant. Like when I look back on my own career, especially in moments where I felt less powerful, I often went to humor and kind of laughed it off and, and sort of just sloughed it off that way. And my teammate Mac says, sometimes I think it's her mom actually, who says this, sometimes you have to laugh to keep from crying. And that was one of my strategies. I bet every single person here has developed a strategy for responding, but it might not necessarily be a healthy one. You know, when I reacted with humor, I sort of gave away my power and I gave away some of my agency and that hurts too. What are some healthy ways of Mm. replying directly when you find yourself the target or the object of a discriminatory comment? You know, it's such a delicate situation because often there's a power dynamic involved as well. And it can be extremely delicate, depending on who the person is, to confront the person directly. So I would say first, it really... I don't think there's a blanket response because people respond so differently. And one person might respond very well to, you know, a reaction and someone else might get really defensive and shut down and not invite you to a meeting that you need to go to in the future. So I would say be very discerning about who the person is and, you know, what their kind of tolerance level might be. But I have found that often asking a question can be helpful. So a question like, Can you tell me more about what you meant by that? Well, I was mentioning in chat that my teammate Mac and I actually have a whole podcast about this. And we talk about some strategies where if you're feeling comfortable and you've got the right constellation of circumstances, you can respond directly. But we also give credence to the fact that sometimes you can't respond directly in the moment or at all. And you should not absorb any guilt around that. The first question is what is right for me in this moment? And sometimes the risk is too high and it's not worth it. And it's not your job necessarily to educate everyone who makes a stupid comment. And so knowing that it's under your control, whether to reply, and then if you choose to reply, Mac and I share some strategies in that podcast. Jessica, I think we have time for one more question. I would love for you to, as we wrap up, just spend a couple moments talking about the way that you end your book, which is by stating, we end bias for the sake of others and for our own. What did you mean by that? You know, I think it can be easy to think of reducing bias as something done solely for the benefit of someone else, the benefit of the person who's on the receiving end of discrimination, the person who's experienced prejudice. And that's clearly the critical emphasis. Like we need to absolutely be paying attention to the harms that are experienced by people receiving on the receiving end of discrimination and how to mitigate those harms, which are unjust and unfair and destructive. But I think that we miss something if we don't also talk about the way that bias harms the perpetrator. And something that I have found is that my own biases, because I am part of this culture too, and I have all of the biases that our culture encourages, my own biases have harmed me. My biases against others have harmed me. They have decreased my ability to form meaningful relationships. They have limited the kind of trust that I have experienced with others. They have 
put kind of a boundary around my experience of the world and my ability to see reality and understand reality. And so my really deep conviction is that the work of reducing bias not only helps people who are on the receiving end, but it helps people who are expressing bias as well. And I think that if we have that mindset, then this doesn't become a nice to have, a nice thing to do. It doesn't have sort of like sometimes the paternalistic or the patronizing kind of tinge that some of this work can have, but it really becomes something that we all need to do as a whole for the benefit of all and for the togetherness of all. Jessica Nordell, author of End of Bias, thank you so much for joining us for the last hour. It's been such a pleasure to spend the time with you and with our Breakline community. Thank you, everybody, for joining. I hope you all have a great evening. Thanks so much, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.